Anthony's wife, Annie Leong, walked out of the lift thinking to herself, my husband is such a lazy man. She had headed down with her kid to sign the divorce papers. But her husband literally called her down for getting to bring a pen. So, here she is, making the trip up and down the elevator twice. As she stepped outside the door, she felt a searing pain at her neck. She might have screamed, except she couldn't. But why couldn't she? She felt herself choking, and she realised a red cloth was shoved straight into her mouth. Another searing pain at her chest and at her back before she saw someone running away. Who was that man? Or wait, was it a boy? She might have thought as she began hobbling towards her house. A doorbell rang and Annie's mother opened the door. Mummy, I've been stabbed. Annie collapsed into her mother's arms, lifeless. Annie? Annie? Annie! You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by One Up Media. I'm your host, Yo Guangjin. Our partner this week is Tabby Tabby Podcast, a podcast about Philippine folklore, mysteries, paranormal stories, and maybe some foreign myths. If you're tired of hearing true crime, then join your host, Ethan, as she opens up the world of strange, wild, and improbable folklore around Asia. You can follow and listen to them at Tabby Tabby Podcast. Link is in the description. Now back to Heinous. In the last episode, we learned that Anthony Le wanted to kill his wife and proposed this to two students that he spent time with, of which he trained one, Gavin, to desensitize the boy before the actual murder. But while we were clear that Anthony intended to kill his wife, we weren't sure why he wanted to. According to the records, both Anthony and his wife had a lot of stability that led to their marriage. They had met in church in 1982, when they were both teenagers, but only got together eight years later in 1990. They spent five years dating before deciding to marry in 1995. Two years later, had their first kid on April 13, 1997. If time together is used as a measure for confidence in marriage, then both Anthony and Annie had it. In fact, Anthony was an entrepreneur, and Annie quit her job at a bank to help him for a while. But statistically, 9 in 10 startups fail, which led to a strain in their marriage. Annie would eventually have to shoulder some debt that Anthony incurred. But even then, they were still together. What finally pushed their marriage off the edge was two women, Marilyn Tan Fun and Belinda Ho. Haven't I seen you before? Said the man. 
Merlin Tan was taken aback. Um, who is he? It was October 2000, and she was in the 7-Eleven store at Pasiris. The man's eyes looked straight into hers. Could I talk to you? What was a sentence became a conversation. What was a conversation became a relationship, and Merlin Tan found herself on the bed beside the man. So what keeps you up at night? She asked him. Hmm. That I'm not rich enough to realize my potential? The man looked skywards, deep into thought. What do you mean? A smile formed around his lips, and he turned towards her, grabbed her hand and said, Follow me. Let me show you my gift. As Merlin rushed out of bed and onto the cab, she knew where he might be taking her. For the past few days, he had been talking about being a publisher for a magazine on horse racing, but all he was lacking was potential investors. To be quite honest, she found him a little annoying that he asked her to sell her flat in Wampo Drive just to finance his business venture. I mean, she barely even knew him yet. The cab turned into Kalang Betting Centre, and they got off. She was holding his hands tightly, trying not to get lost in the crowds of punters while controlling her breath. The centre smelled of horse shit, quite literally, from the horses waiting to race. The man looked at her and said, Everyone here is betting, but I'll be making an investment, just like you. I'm not a betting man. He pulled out some papers on horses, read about the different jockeys, and placed a bet. Or rather, an investment. Wow, my man is crazy. She might have been thinking. The sound of gunshot, the smell of gunfire, and the stampede of horses happened quickly. And their eyes were on lucky number 37. According to the man, the combination of the jockey and Lucky 37 will be guaranteed a win. The horses were coming into their last 100 meters, which would mean in 6 seconds time, Lucky number 37 had to speed past two horses ahead of him. Marilyn couldn't look, her eyes down on the ground, as the announcer called the end of the race. Ladies and gentlemen, Congratulations to lucky number 37. Marilyn couldn't believe it. Oh my god, she screamed and hugged the man. I'm going to sell my house. I'm not a betting woman either. I'm an investor. Time for us to get rich, Anthony. According to the records, Marilyn started an affair with Anthony starting in October 2000 and moved from pleasure to business around December 2000 when Anthony convinced her of his betting prowess in horses. They would register a business called Advanced Media under her name, where she would borrow $50,000 from relatives as a deposit. At first, we didn't understand how could she have been so smitten with Anthony, until we learned that Anthony had done this routine before, three years ago, to a Belinda Ho. Who is she? Annie asked Anthony. He had just brought home a business partner and might have proposed that staying together was necessary since they were working together. Oh honey, this is Belinda, 
she's the business partner that I was telling you about. Right, any thought. The past year, Belinda had been helping him to set up a gap graphics in Geelang, which focused on graphics design. Well, glad that you're here to help him, Belinda. Both Belinda and Anthony would cohabit, and Annie Leong would eventually discover their extramarital affair. This was the final straw needed for Annie to divorce Anthony while keeping custody of their own child, limiting when Anthony could meet his daughter. Years later, he would explain that her decision to take his daughter away from him tore him apart and would motivate him to end her. While the torment of Annie seemed to be over at that time, for Belinda, it would have just begun. She had taken over a gap graphics in her name when Anthony couldn't renew the license due to some administrative reason. This year, in October, they were also going to launch two more businesses. The first, Klatz Models, a modeling company, and Entertainment Zone Publications, to publish an entertainment company called Pink. All three would fail, and Belinda would have $100,000 in debt during 1999 which is about 135000 in today's value. We couldn't help but reflect if Marilyn had met Belinda earlier, she would have known the signs, but she didn't. And four years later, she would have been in debt of $70,000. Learning about these two women was important to us because as he lay down in bed with them, he also shared with them his darkest thoughts. He told them both that his wife would die but if he had only told them that he was convincing a kid to do it for him, they might have been able to step in and save the boy from Anthony. Adeline Quack woke up from her afternoon nap to a call from her friend. Hey Adeline, um, can I talk to you? Not on the phone, but outside. Adeline was still rubbing her eyes, but she knew this was important. He had never quite sound like that before. They met right outside her house. Hey, the boy called out. There was silence. The silence was enough to make Adeline feel awkward. So, she had to talk. You wouldn't believe this cute white Pomeranian that I met earlier. The man was a little weird, but the dog, you should have seen just how cute- The man is weird, the boy interrupted. Sorry, I say it, the man is weird. His name is Anthony. He had been mentoring us for a while. He started shifting around. I was at his place a couple of days ago. He brought a poster to my face and told me to stab it. Adeline was getting scared. She never known Gavin to seem so confused before. He told me that- if I killed his wife, he would give me $100,000. I'm confused, Adeline. I think I just might take the knife and kill his wife. But his daughter is so cute. And could I really make her an orphan? Could I really kill her? Stop. Just stop. Adeline interrupted. Stop thinking about this, Gavin. It's crazy. It's an offense. Promise me you'll never, ever do it. Gavin looked up and Adeline was looking straight into his eyes. I promise. Adeline Quack was just 14 years at that time, two years younger than Gavin. But on the 9th of May, 2001, 
Adeline Quack would have changed Gavin's life. It was quoted in court by the judge at that time that it was Gavin's great fortune that he had met a friend, young though she was, who was clear-thinking, sensible, and able to persuade him away from the disastrous path that he was being led along. It was also an enlightened Gavin who immediately called his very good friend, Z, to warn him of the danger they were in. According to the records, we learned that Gavin called Z and warned him about Anthony. Z was the 15-year-old boy that spent his childhood playing with Anthony's white Pomeranian. While all five boys had only met Anthony for a couple of months, Z, the youngest in the group, met him while he was 10 years old. In those years, there were many more opportunities for Anthony to build authority through his mentorship versus the other four boys. After Gavin rejected Anthony, Anthony grew desperate and started wrapping his fingers around Z. All this would culminate to the 14th of May 2001, where Z would just be a pawn to Anthony's demands. Hey Alex, want to talk about some true crime? You know, Pia, I think the world has heard enough about Ted Bundy and Charles Manson. Well, what if I told you the story involved luscious mustaches, cobras, and poison curry? Hey, now that sounds spicy and fresh. Let's do it. Tune in to Crimes from the East, where we're spelling the chai about South Asian true crime. Find me, Alex. And me, Pia. Wherever you listen to podcasts. We are Crimes from the East, your weekly dose of true crime, the South Asian kind. Namaste. Namaste. Repeat the instructions back to me. Anthony might have asked. Don't let anyone see your face. Don't leave any fingerprints. Use the correct weapon. Make it look like a robbery. Don't let the victim hurt you. And don't leave cigarette butts around. Anthony pulled out a short Japanese knife. Get a knife like this. We want the weapon to be small enough to be hidden, but sharp enough to stab into her heart. Z gave no reaction. Okay, Z, now repeat to me what happens after we kill my wife. Wipe off the blood and fingerprints, destroy the evidence, avoid suspicion, don't panic, act normally. Good. Now let's go and kill my wife. Z followed Anthony towards the coffee shop nearby at block 443 Passeries Drive 6. It was around dinner time, so the coffee shop was busy. Z looked around and maybe wondered how many people are waiting in the coffee shop for the very same reasons that he was here. Let's go. Anthony's voice entered his mind. They walked past a hardware store to count their inventory before taking the bus 81 towards Aokang. Z's palms felt moist. His chest tight. He never really felt that way before. The bus felt like it was making loops. Maybe I should call it off, Z thought. I'm feeling sick. Let's go. Anthony's voice entered his mind once again. They left and transferred to another feeder service before boarding bus 322. They arrived at block 923, Aokang Avenue 9. 
where Anthony's wife was staying. Wait for me at level 5. Anthony was grinning. Z took the elevator and probably wondered, why were the buttons so difficult to press inside the lift? Upon exiting, he felt a hand around his mouth and Z's heart rate spiked. Am I going to die? He closed his eyes. At least, I wouldn't have to do this anymore. But nothing happened. Instead, he noticed only a finger moved across his neck. It was Anthony, who crept up behind him. See? It's simple. He grinned. After Z waited at the block and was looking out for Anthony's wife, Anthony had told him many times that she had long hair but did not look pretty. She would also have a white bag. Z looked at his watch. It was 8pm. It was getting a little late. He looked up and he saw Anthony's wife. Let's go. The voice of Anthony was ringing in his mind. He stood up, walked quickly over and saw a little girl. She was much smaller than him. Maybe not much taller than his waist. He lifted his arm, but it started shaking. Wait, what am I doing? How can I kill her in front of her own daughter? She must only be four years old. He put down the knife and went away. From what we learned, Z couldn't kill Annie because he saw their daughter with her. And despite how much Anthony pushed Z, this would happen over and over again. For about four days straight, Z would head to block 923 Aukang Avenue 9, lie in wait and stop because of his daughter. Z even mentioned to the police that on these moments, he thanked God. It was now the 14th of May 2001, and Z was taking the taxi towards Passeris Beach. Thank you, uncle. Z was polite and passed $8 for the fare. The ocean was breathing down onto Z's face, and he might have been thinking if it was salt or iron that he smelled in the air. He took out his mobile card split it into two, and threw it onto the grass. He then headed to the rubbish bin, threw his knife and a cloth into the bin. He sat, looking at the beach, breathing the air of the sea, before breaking down in his head. Why didn't the girl walk up with Annie? On the 14th of May, 2001, Annie would have used the lift to level 5 like she always did. Except, Anthony would have requested to play with his daughter that night. Annie would have exited the lift without her daughter, and Z couldn't thank God anymore. Annie would die from acute hemorrhage due to stab wounds of heart and lungs. Each wound was measured to be 6 to 15 centimeters long. In the days that followed, the police immediately suspected Anthony. It was strange of him to be at Annie's place requesting to play with her daughter at 11.30 to 11.45pm, which was past Annie's bedtime at 10.30pm. But what sealed the deal was when the police approached Z and he confessed to everything in detail. 
This, along with all five boys and two mistresses' statements, was undeniable that Anthony the King was using the boys as his pawns to direct the demise of his own queen. Despite denying and appealing to the court, Anthony Le Wee-Tiong was sentenced to death and hung on the 5th of December 2001. As for the boy, he was named Z because he was under 16 years of age and his identity had to be withheld. He was detained indefinitely, but released somewhere around 2018, which meant he spent his years growing up from age 15 to 32 in prison. In our research into the case, knowing for certain what Z felt is difficult, and the media has a deceptive way of painting any story it likes. But we did find one handwritten statement of what Z made on the 18th of May 2001, four days after he committed the murder. This was his written statement in its entirety. I got to know Anthony Le when I was about the age of 10. I used to bring my hamsters down to the stone chairs and play with it. Anthony had a dog, so that was roughly how I got to know him. Anthony shifted away from Block 109, Pasari Street 11, so I lost contact with him. But he did not tell me that he was going to shift to Block 116, Pasari Street 11. It was only recently that I found out that he had shifted to Block 116. Then I saw him almost every night when I went down to the coffee shop or McDonald's. He met my friends, Gavin, Vic, Ka Chiong, and Zi Hao. At first, my friends did not like his company, but after some time, they accepted him. He started telling us about his wife and even asked us if we would like to kill her. In return, he would give us a sum of $100,000. All of us rejected. But later on, he came and asked me to do it. He told me, that nothing would happen to me and asked me to imagine that I'm getting paid about 2000 or more per month for the next four years. Anthony told me that nothing would happen to me if I went according to his plans. He said he had thought and planned this whole thing out for a really long time. He threatened to kill me if I didn't want to do it after knowing so many things about him. I believed him and agreed to help him because he told me that he killed for a living. And until now, he did not get caught. He also mentioned that his graphic design job was just a cover-up. After that, he gave me $100 to get two M cards so that he could contact me without people knowing. Then, he told me to get a knife, a sharp pointed one. After he told me that, I went to a handphone kiosk at Passeries Drive 6 to get two SIM cards. Then I got a knife from the hardware shop beside the kiosk. Then I met him at the bus stop around the road so that he could show me the place where his wife lives. He brought me to Block 923, Aukang Avenue 9. After that, we went back to his place. There, he taught me how to murder his wife. He told me to practice so that when the time comes, I would not be scared. On May 13, 2001, Anthony told me that before he went to McDonald's, he had gone to meet his wife and to see his daughter. He also told me that during that time, he had tried to kill his wife, but did not have the chance because his daughter was around. I was quite happy when I heard this, because I did not want to do this. 
I was forced to do it. I followed Anthony back to his house because he asked me to practice how to kill his wife. On May 14, at about 9pm plus, I went to Anthony's house to practice some more because he kept calling me on my handphone. At Anthony's house, after practicing, he wrapped the knife in newspaper and passed it to me. I tucked the knife in my jeans. We took a bus over to his wife's place. After alighting from the bus, we went our separate ways. I went to his wife's void deck while he went to a nearby coffee shop. After that, he called me on my handphone and told me to wait for his wife to return home. So, I waited. At 10pm plus, he called me to say that his wife had returned home already and he asked me to wait for his wife at the fifth story. I did not kill her because their daughter was with her at that time. I then called Anthony to tell him that I did not want to do it because his daughter was present. He told me that his wife would be going up alone and he asked me to take that chance. I attacked her from behind. I slashed her neck and stabbed her in the chest. After that, I ran down the stairs and walked to the bus stop where I took a cab to dispose the weapon. On the way to the beach to dispose the knife, I really regretted doing it. Even at this point of time, while writing this. How I wished I had never known Anthony. I have let my parents down and all those around me. I do not know how people would think of me. I feel very lost and confused. Anthony did not call me on my handphone until the morning of May 17, 2001. He asked me to get the new paper for him and lunch. Anthony told me the police had looked for him and he would pass me some of the money later on. Anthony told me that I had done a good job. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by One Up Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, you can reach out to us via email at heinous at oneupmediapodcast.com or through our Instagram or TikTok page at heinous underscore oneupmedia. This episode of Heinous was researched, produced, and written by Yo Guangjin, with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks as well to executive producers Danny Cordy, Barry To from MediaCorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous. <laughs> <laughs>